Welcome to A Dorkomotive Short with Brian Loans. On this episode, we're going to tell the story of the Vulcan Shuttle, one of drag racing's most infamous and insane exhibition vehicles, and its wild story from beginning to end. A Volkswagen Beetle with a solid propellant rocket? How could this possibly go bad? This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by NitroActive.net. NitroActive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and check out and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net. So in this show, we're going to talk about the legendary Vulcan Shuttle. For those of you that understand what this vehicle was um, you may know a little bit about this thing but I'm going to really take it deep down into the trenches as deep as I can anyway to give you the history of this incredible vehicle for those of you that don't know what this vehicle was we're talking about a Volkswagen Beetle that had a solid fuel rocket run through the center of it basically and it was an exhibition car that was run at drag strips if you don't know the Vulcan shuttle if you've never seen it I encourage you to go to uh, Google and do a Google image search and just look at this thing so you really understand. But in your mind's eye, to get the story started, you need to be able to visualize what this is. So picture a typical 1960s Volkswagen Beetle and then picture it with um, a fake rocket running right through the center of it. The nose cone projecting four or five feet um, out the nose and there is a tail cone coming out the back and that is an actual uh, rocket engine. This was run at drag strips for about three or four years, made 80, 90, 100 runs plus successfully at many tracks. And of course, the last run that it made was not successful. And why this car goes down in drag racing infamy as being one of the perhaps most ill-advised setups that has ever been attempted in the world of exhibition drag racing. But the most interesting part of this car and that I think you'll find interesting is on its face it sounds very dumb it sounds like oh man who would do this who would take a Volkswagen Beetle put a solid fuel rocket in it and try to make money exhibition drag racing as it turns out two really smart guys did this and yes ultimately the end is not good but it is way more than just some people sitting around that had a bad idea one day. The guys that are involved in this project, Raul Cabrera and Ron Poole, those are the uh, two men who ultimately build the car and the two men who campaign it at different drag strips, mostly on the east coast of the United States from Washington, D.C. area down through Florida. They are Floridians, so the car does spend most of its time in the southeast. And what a lot of people will tell you about this car is that it crashed on its first run and that the guy, Ron Poole, unfortunately was killed on like the first trip down the racetrack. Completely false. This is the second version of this car that was built and it was run for years. They made several seasons worth of exhibition drag racing runs with this car before suffering uh, a fatal accident that ended not only its career in drag racing, also the careers of Raul Cabrera and Ronnie Poole. So rocket cars and drag racing, let's start there real quick. 
1970s. I've talked about this on the podcast before, but in the 1970s, rocket cars were a very popular draw to drag strips as exhibition vehicles. They were the fastest things on the drag strip anyone had ever seen, and they are still, in the history books, the fastest drag racing vehicles ever built. The rockets run in the 1960s were, by and large, hydrogen peroxide chemical rockets. And how these worked was, and I've told you this before, but I'm going back through the details for anybody who did not hear it previously. You had a pressurized tank of hydrogen peroxide liquid, very pure hydrogen peroxide, 99% plus. That pressurized hydrogen peroxide was then forced through a little opening out of the bottom of the tank, and it was forced to run across screens, like just like metal screens that were coated in silver. And the silver and the hydrogen peroxide interact with each other instantaneously to create a chemical reaction which produces steam. The expanding steam from the reaction is forced out of a nozzle at the rear of the vehicle, and when that steam comes out, that makes thrust, and that's what propels the vehicle down the racetrack. It, 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 they would make immense amounts of power. They were built very light. There was a very high level of danger because of the speeds involved in hydrogen peroxide rockets, but the cool thing was there was not a lot of danger involved with the chemical itself. You had to keep it away from your skin. It was nasty in that respect, but it wasn't unstable to the point where it would blow up or catch on fire. Um, There was no risk of fire in the vehicle because you had no ignition source. It was simply a chemical reaction happening between the peroxide and the silver screens that it was being forced across. So, as incredible as the performances were out of those rocket cars, um, it was basically a steam rocket that had very little potential to maim you, and it could also be shut off, and that is the very important central point we need to talk about when it comes to the Vulcan shuttle and every other rocket car ever built. With a hydrogen peroxide rocket, you could close the valve, effectively take your foot off the throttle, and it would stop the reaction, stop the flow of hydrogen peroxide, and stop the vehicle from accelerating. With a solid fuel rocket, as was used in the Vulcan shuttle, once you ignite it, there is no shutting it off. For any kid who used to play with the model rocket kits like I used to, and hopefully many of you did back in the day, once you hit the igniter button with your little launch pad deal, and that solid fuel rocket, uh, the solid fuel motor that you would put in your model rocket had ignited, there was no stopping it. And this is the same for your model rocket, and it's the same for the Vulcan shuttle. The big difference between Raul Cabrera and Ronnie Poole's car and everybody else's was that they used a solid fuel rocket, the same as uh, the booster rockets used on the space shuttle. Those big giant rockets that would be on the outside, left and right of the space shuttle, the first ones that would kind of peel off and fall into the ocean, those were solid fuel rockets. And the same principle applies here, where once you ignite that solid fuel rocket, it will run for as long as there is fuel for it to run. So the trick is only provide enough fuel for the car to have enough accelerative time to do what you want it to do. You know what the burn rate of the fuel is. You know how much you're going to put into this rocket. So you can have it burn for a few seconds and burn out. Sounds okay. I personally would prefer a throttle. Anybody that was involved in the world of rockets and drag racing during this era tried to talk Cabrera and Poole out of this plan. And Kai Michelson, um, really the leading authority, I would say, on rocket cars from this era, was involved in all the fast ones, is still involved in rocket cars today. I actually met with Raul Cabrera and Ronnie Poole at a drag strip when he was making exhibition runs uh, with his driver in one of his cars back in the 1970s, and they told him what they were going to do. They said, hey, we're going to build this rocket car, 
with solid fuel instead of liquid. And he said, man, that seems like a bad idea to me because you can't shut it off. But, you know, they were going to go ahead and do what they were going to do anyway. So they went ahead and did it. Now, the really interesting thing about the Vulcan shuttle beyond the bizarre physics, which we'll get into in a few minutes, is the two men involved. And Raul Cabrera is a guy who became interested in rocketry during the 1950s when so many kids in America did and so many engineers in America did. It was the beginnings of the space program. It was when rocketry really became um, a a central focus of so many people in the country. So uh, when he was a kid, he was, you know, building hobby rockets and and doing all that kind of stuff. He went to Auburn uh, University. Uh, Ron Poole, actually, I should say, Ron Poole went to Auburn University. Um, And Ron, his partner, is, is a guy who's brilliant. I mean, he, he was a chemist and he went to school for polymer science. So not only did these two guys have a great background in rocketry, they were also very smart. They were educated and they not only understood the principles of um, physically burning or building a rocket, they understood the principles of fueling this solid propellant rocket to the point where they made their own rocket fuel. These guys would make their own rockets, and they started small. They started making rockets that they would, you know, test rockets they'd shoot in the sky. They mounted small rockets to skateboards, then on a go-kart, and they came up with different ideas for how to make different fuels, what what to use, how to do this safely. And this is not simply a matter of taking a few handfuls of a putty or whatever and jamming it into a tube and then igniting it and having a rocket. I mean, you really need to know what you're doing <laughs> Because you're mixing chemicals together to form a solid to start with. Then you have to somehow make sure that solid is shaped and formed inside your rocket to burn properly and at the right rate and then for the right amount of time. Then you have to harness the thrust of the burning fuel inside the rocket. And these guys are doing it all from scratch. So that is the first and most wildly impressive thing to me about the Vulcan Shuttle Project is the fact that they are doing this from scratch. And... It is, it is high-level science, I would say, certainly well beyond what we would expect out of a rocket-propelled Volkswagen. So as they have progressed through the uh, skateboards and the go-karts and the aerial rockets, it's 1975, and they have built enough confidence in themselves that they're actually going to build a rocket car. They're going to do this. And so they take a Volkswagen... Uh, it was a Volkswagen body. They they put the Volkswagen body on a tube chassis, and they developed four small rocket motors that they built in a cluster, kind of a diamond shape. One, you know, top, bottom, left, and right, kind of a square, you know, rotated 45 degrees. Figure that shape, and they are sticking out the back of this Volkswagen that they had built. So each of these things is four inches in diameter, and each of them was going to use 30 pounds of the solid propellant inside it. So they'd each burn for, you know, a few seconds or whatnot, several seconds, whatever their timing was here. They named the car Fright and Lightning. And I'm quoting now from Kai Michelson's book, Rocket Man, regarding the Fright and Lightning Volkswagen. This is not the Vulcan shuttle. This, this is the first car they built. If you can imagine, the Vulcan shuttle was the second car they built. So this Volkswagen, tube chassis, Volkswagen body, four small rockets sticking out the back, quoting from Kai Michelson. On March 31st, 1975, with a number of their good friends looking on, Raul and Ron had the car ready to make its debut and perform its first test run. 
They positioned themselves on an old, old abandoned highway, and with Ron behind the wheel and Raul in the passenger seat, Ron pushed the ignition button. In that moment, all hell broke loose. The top motor detonated, completely disintegrating the entire body of the Volkswagen. Concussions knocked them out both unconscious, and they were rushed to Lakeland Hospital, where they spent two weeks recuperating. Once they fully recovered, Ron and Raul began their investigation into the cause of the accident. Upon further investigation of the unburned propellant, they concluded that not only had the polymer fuel become hard and brittle during storage, causing cracks in the propellant while under operating pressure, but the oxidizer used was the wrong type, which added to the detonation that led to the car's demise. So these guys made their own rockets, made their own rocket fuel, and then attempting to make a rocket car effectively blew themselves up the first time they hit the button to get this car to move an inch. They didn't die. Good news, right? They decided that uh, let's let uh, maybe bygones be bygones here. Had some fun. What a project. And uh, maybe this isn't for us. But here's the thing with inventive and motivated people. You just can't let ideas go that easily. And it might have taken them a little while, but they decided to get themselves back together again. So we're talking maybe a year or so down the road, and the guys get back together, and they decide, hey, we're smart enough to figure this out. You know, let's not let that be the end of this project. We know what we're doing. We're both educated in this field. We should be able to figure it out. So they went in and they basically, they autopsied their rocket and what the failures were. And really they came up with a solution, a solution that would, for a span of about four years, power them successfully down drag strips and airport runways all across the country. And I'm not smart enough to know why this works. I'm not smart enough to know uh, the chemistry of this. But to some of you that might be, again, quoting from the book Rocketman by Kai Michelson, here's what they did. They formulated a propellant using 200 micron rotary rounded ammonium prechlorate and 15% zinc powder, which reduced the acidity of the ammonium prechlorate. They were sure this new formula would allow them to perform in the presence of a crowd of people. The fuel, called Paraplex P13, was a super polyester styrene monomer with a 200% flexibility and 6,500 PSI strength. After a series of tests, they never experienced another motor explosion, and with a five-spoke wheel propellant casting mandrel designed by Raoul, they gained enough confidence to actually begin building another car. That mandrel we're talking about, or that was mentioned, is what is used to basically form and shape the fuel in the rocket. It is an essential and precision-made piece that um, effectively causes the, you know, in, in many ways, success or failure is determined by, you know, that mandrel, how the fuel is placed, how it's going to burn, all that type of stuff. And again, we go back to how smart Cabrera and Poole are because they're doing this all themselves. This is a very high-level hobby project for these guys. And it works. And they're making runs, and things are things are going well in testing. So now we go back to the book, and we go back to the next step in this process. Quoting Michelson, Raul and Ron didn't want to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, so they started out with a standard Volkswagen, which they stripped down. They then added a roll cage and mounted what looked like a military rocket right through the center of the car, complete with fins sticking out the back. They proudly named the car the Vulcan Shuttle. After three years of hard work, they made their debut run with the car in September 1978 at Hernando County Airport in Brooksville, Florida. Ron Poole drove the car most of the time and had a number of tracks around the southern states, but Raul took on the driving chores at Capitol Raceway in Washington, D.C. one evening. 
It was a night run, and the track lights were off, adding to the difficulty of driving the thing. As soon as the motor shut down, the car's front end suddenly became completely airborne. The Vulcan shuttle was going 188 miles an hour when Raul hit the parachute, then the brakes, and the car slipped sideways, crashing hard into the ground. Raul later said the force had been so intense he thought he'd popped his eyeballs right out of his head. They'd stayed intact, but they were blood red and really sore for about two weeks afterward. The shoulder straps had broken his collarbone, but other than that, he walked away from the crash and considered himself very lucky. This is where the story sadly takes a turn for the dark. So they have this crash where the car basically takes flight, and like everything else, from what I've been able to discern and read... They were pushing the envelope of performance. This was a car that when they first started running it, they'd had it set up to go 140, 150. That was fast enough. But you go 140, 150 enough, you think, eh, what, uh, maybe we can go 150, 160. Just a matter of some more fuel in the rocket. They had power for days. So the rocket burns a little longer. Now you're going 150, 160. Now you're up to the point where you're going 170, 180. And... The troubling thing about a, a business like drag racing or exhibition drag racing is you need to continually top your own show in order to be booked back into places where you want to go race again. You can't keep coming back with a car that runs the same speed every year because no one's going to buy those tickets after you do it two or three times. So the performance continues to increase. Raul decides that his driving career end of this thing is over. So um, with the car now capable of running 190 miles an hour, they are in very uncharted territory, not for the rocket, but for the car itself. This is a Volkswagen Beetle. And what we know through history of other people that have done fast stuff with Volkswagen Beetles is that aerodynamically, they are horrendous when you get to any sort of serious speed. And when we're talking about speeds that verge on 200 miles an hour, there are few things on this planet that contain four wheels that are more incapable of being stable at those speeds than a Volkswagen Beetle. And this is where Ron Poole runs into a very serious problem on March 4th, 1981. One more time with Kai Michelson. After the crash at Capital Raceway, the team picked up the pieces and rebuilt the car one more time. Because of Raul's last tumultuous ride, Ron was put back in the seat once again. He had the most experience, and Raul had pretty much lost interest in driving altogether. Ron made approximately 80 more successful runs before disaster struck. And I'll add my own caveat here, closer to 120 runs from the research I've been able to do. On March 4, 1981, they took the solid fuel rocket Volkswagen to Vandenberg Airport in Tampa, Florida to test it. This airport is still in existence. It's now known as the Tampa Executive Airport. In a horrifying instant, Ron lost his life as the thrust of the rocket engine pushed down on the front end, breaking a tie rod and sending the car end over end with so much force that Ron was ejected and died upon impact. As has happened to so many speed pioneers before them, legendary efforts as the first team ever to build a solid-fuel rocket-powered car in the United States ended tragically. This car, you know, again, it is, it is one of those things where even I, over the course of time and over the years, have written stories about it. I have seen pictures of it. I have joked with people about this car, about how whimsically insane it is and what did these guys think was going to happen you know what did these guys what did these guys think was going to happen putting a solid fuel rocket in a volkswagen well the joke in this case is really on me ron Poole's death is very sad but ron Poole's death has nothing to do with a rocket ron Poole's death has everything to do with an unfortunate mechanical failure in the front end of his race car the vulcan shuttle didn't kill ron Poole because these guys didn't know what they were doing with rockets 
The Vulcan shuttle killed Ron Poole because these guys missed some maintenance issues, perhaps missed a front end check that would have maybe exposed that tie rod getting ready to fail. They were overstressing parts on a car that had no business going as fast as it was going, but their smarts, their intelligence, and their engineering ability on the rocket side of this thing cannot be faulted because other than the explosion they had when they were figuring it out in 1975 or 6, they never had another issue like that again. They ran this thing in front of thousands and thousands of people at drag strips all over the country, making well over 100 runs, probably closer to 200 runs before they had the problem at Capital Raceway. They probably had 100 or so under their belt, and after that, my my research says that Ron Poole made nearly 100, if not 120 runs with this car at various match races all over the South. The debut of the car in 1977-ish, the end of the car coming in 1981. It is an amazing story to me because of the fact that these guys were so smart that they sat down at a table, designed their own solid monopropellant rockets, designed their own rocket fuel, and then went ahead and built their own rockets and made what I would consider pretty good money as exhibition drag race performers through the late 1970s and into the very early 1980s. That is the story of Raul Cabrera and Ronnie Poole and the legend of the Vulcan shuttle. Make sure you go look at pictures of this thing and understand when you're looking at it. It didn't blow up. It didn't blow over backwards. It was an unfortunate mechanical failure that ended the life of Ron Poole, who was very, very smart. And with his racing partner, Raul Cabrera, did something no one else in the United States history had ever done, and I don't think has done since, which is to create a car powered by a solid fuel rocket engine. Thanks very much, Kai Michelson's book, Rocket Man, a great reference here for this story. And the internet does not provide a lot of details on this car, but if you dig down deep enough, you can find them. It is a strange chapter in drag racing history, a short track chapter in drag racing history, and we have come to an end of another Dorkomotive Short with Brian Loans. Make sure you check out dorkomotive.com to keep up on everything going on with the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back soon with another full-length episode. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is being presented by NitroActive.net. NitroActive.net carries the best in nostalgia West Coast drag strip t-shirts as well as hot rod and car culture t-shirts from places like Moon Eyes, Laid Back, Lucky 13, SoCal Speed Shop, Hollywood Hot Rods, and more. They also have a massive inventory of vintage collectible hot rod, car craft, hop-up, popular hot rodding, drag racing, super stock, and drag illustrated magazines, as well as classic and vintage photos. Visit NitroActive.net for all your vintage hot rod and drag racing needs. Use promo code DORK and checkout and save 10% on your next purchase at NitroActive.net.